and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Siblings share a unique relationship. They've known each other longer than almost anyone else. And no matter how close or distant siblings are today, they are a part of each other. Part of the power and the subsequent challenge of being a systemic therapist is getting to work with sibling relationships. Sometimes we help individuals get a better handle on dealing with a difficult brother or sister in individual therapy. Other times, we get to do the work relationally or conjointly with the sibling subsystem in the room at the same time. As we will learn on this installment of the AMFT podcast, as adults, siblings are actually part of two distinct sibling sets. The original siblings are the ones who grew up together and have changed and aged together. The second set is the creation of their childhood perceptions, feelings, which includes hurts, resentments, as well as idealizations about the original unit. These siblings are not visible and they never age. While these siblings mostly lie dormant, when they do jump into action, they can distort how adults relate to their siblings in the here and now. So this is the life's work of today's guest, Karen Gale Lewis. She is an LMFT with a specialty in sibling therapy. Originally trained as a social worker, in the early 70s, she became involved in family therapy after witnessing the work firsthand of several MFT pioneers that we mention on this show often as she'll discuss today. But over the past five decades, Karen has incorporated a number of innovative ways to help individuals, couples, and families, such as unique retreats for women and weekend retreats for adult siblings. So in addition to being both a national and international speaker on the topic of sibling therapy, Dr. Lewis has published a multitude of articles and books about relationships in general, from things like marriage, single women, and to focus today, adult siblings. She's also the past recipient of the Washington, D.C. Rape Crisis Center's Visionary Award. Her new book, and the basis for our talk today, entitled Sibling Therapy, The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients' Love and Work, is what we will focus on today. We're going to explain how old childhood sibling issues often underlie current client issues, whether they be individual or couple. We're going to explore how sibling childhood relationships not only affect the client, but may also impact adult relationships with friends, coworkers, and their own children. Karen will spend a lot of time focusing on these four components of sibling ghost and how they affect our clients. And we'll spend a little time offering ideas for directing siblings out of their negative behavioral patterns. And 
while doing the work relationally is great. We'll think of mostly doing this work, being a systemic therapist, a family therapist with one person in the rooms. Karen, as she works with the individual to understand both the historic and the here and now impact of their sibling relationships. Really hope you enjoy this thoughtful dialogue. We will return at the conclusion of the interview to share some more news you can use from the AAMFT. For MFTs, addressing mistrust in couples due to alcohol misuse can be one of the greatest challenges. Soberlink is your ally in this journey. Trusted for over a decade, it delivers real-time, discreet proof of sobriety, fostering accountability and healing in your clients. Elevate your practice with a solution that meets the core issues head-on. Make every session more impactful. Request free materials from Soberlink. That's www.soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Soberlink.com slash A-A-M-F-T. Immerse yourself, share with clients, and witness transformation. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by author of Sibling Therapy, The Ghosts from Childhood That Haunt Your Clients' Love and Work, Dr. Karen Gail Lewis. Karen, welcome to the show. First question, as always, we want to know about your therapeutic origin story. How did you get interested in MFT generally and specifically the focus of our talk today, working with adult siblings and sibling therapy? Okay, I'll tell you first how I get interested in family therapy. We're talking 50 years ago, maybe. There were no schools of family therapy, but I bumped into somebody who was doing this thing called family therapy. And then I heard about a group that was meeting that was doing this thing, family therapy. And one of the things this group did is they had the pioneers, all the very early pioneers, Bowen, Mnuchin, Haley, Naj, and Carl Whitaker, they would come around and they would sit with a group of people who were doing this thing called family therapy, and they would do a live interview. They would talk to us and do some training with us, and then they would meet with the family, and we would sit in the room. It was long before one-way mirrors, and it was just very exciting. And that's how I went from my psychodynamic social work training to opening up uh, this incredible field of, oh, this is a way of really helping people in a much larger way. From there, I'm now doing family therapy, and I have a man come into my office who is depressed, but he's been in therapy before with lots of other therapists, apparently. And of course, I always think maybe we all are, there's a part of us thinking, oh, we will do better than the prior therapist. But at the end of the first session, I thought, no, I think I need to ask him to bring in other people, bring in someone else, the family therapy thing. If you're stuck, bring in other people, expand the system. So I said, next time you come, bring in somebody who knows you well. And so obviously, I assumed he'd bring his wife. Obviously, I was wrong. This man was in his mid-30s or something, and he brought in his brother. And as a result of that session, which in my book that you just mentioned, Sibling Therapy, I go into detail about the session. So all I can tell you now and here is that session just opened my eyes to, I would have all the therapists before totally missed his depression because the brother brought a perspective of what was going on in their family roles and their expectations for each other. 
And out of that, I began understanding more of the, what I now call the four ghosts or the four concepts of how siblings, even when you're individual sessions, siblings have an imp- childhood, the early childhood roles have an expectation that gets set in you and you bring it with you to your adult life and problems that you have in your adult life, whether you're an individual or whether you're in a couples therapy, are evolved from that. Not all the time, but an awful lot of the time. And we'll do more details about this, I'm sure. We're going to talk on two levels. Your example that you gave was a great example of when we expand the system and a guest comes in to elucidate their perspective on what's going on with our primary client or the presenting problem. So when you can do the work relationally with multiple siblings in the room, I think that's great. But so much of your work and what we're going to talk about today is, as Murray Bowen said, you can be the family therapist with one person in the room. So it's you helping clients understand uh, what you'll call two sibling relationships, both of the, the current and these of these ghosts, even when you're working with one person. And I think probably most of your work and most of what we'll talk about today is when you're working with the individual on their sibling relationships. Yes. And the reason for that is pretty obvious. If siblings come in to see you, you got your siblings in front of you. I think these four ghosts are still very helpful, but that's easier. For me, the most important part is recognizing when you don't have the sibling in front of you, how that impacts the problems that your current client has. Also, many times people will come in and they will tell you, hey, I'm here by myself, but I have this problem. Sometimes I know in in my age, mid-40s, sandwiched between launching my children and taking care of an aging parent, uh, my conflicts with my sibling uh, come around how we come together to take care of our mother. So I imagine sometimes people will come in with a difficult sibling as the presenting problem. Other times, it's very clear that relationship has impacted them, as you were saying, in other adult relationships. They may have not have made that connection yet, but it's our job as the systemic therapist to help them understand those ties. That's where the ghosts come in. So you have four of them, uh, which you categorize as ghosts. Let's break them down one by one, which is really the foundation of the book. And I know you have good stories involved with each of the categories, but how'd you come up with those categories? And let's break them down one by one. For those of us who have flesh and blood siblings, we have two sets of siblings. We have the flesh and blood ones that age when we age. But then we have the ghosts. And these are the ghosts from preschool years or birth, if you will, maybe up to even third grade. So there's very early years, the hurts, the resentments, the idealizations, and these ghosts get embedded in us. And like most ghosts, they're not visible all the time. So you don't know, I mean, if you had a headache all the time, you'd know you had a headache, but you don't know that these ghosts are around because they just pop up when they want to. And so let me show you what these four ghosts are. The first one is frozen images. And frozen images is a concept that Bank and Khan used in their first book on the sibling bond back in the 80s. So a frozen image is how we see our siblings from those early years, preschool up to third grade maybe, both the positive and the negative images. The positive are idealized and the negative images are the, they're very mean, they're manipulative, bossy, whatnot. And what happens, they, these images get frozen into us in those early years. And then in adulthood, they 
may reappear at any time, despite how much you or your siblings have changed. So they may not even be accurate anymore, but the image is frozen into how they, so you see someone as a bossy older sister. The sister may no longer be bossy or mean, but something happens, whether it's a hand motion or a facial expression or a body image or words. Uh, are taken out of context because they trigger that ghost that's living inside, that little child inside, and we're reacting to the frozen image, regardless how much people have changed over the years. Sometimes clients, when they describe that, they'll give us that frozen image. We can see a visual. Maybe give us some techniques to capture what those frozen images are if the client doesn't really give it to you right away. Okay, and in my book, I actually go through a whole bunch of different ways to do this. But I'll tell you quickly, look for the words always and never. Look for those absolutes. He never did this. He's always doing that. That may be true, but chances are it isn't always that your sibling is always doing something. And so that to me, it doesn't mean every time I hear always or never, that's a frozen image. But that's a potential. And so that's one of the clues and I have, as I say in the book, I have a whole list of other clues to look for that can trigger you to say, is there something else going on here besides two adults interacting? So after the images comes the crystallized roles. Tell right. us about that. Almost all families, probably all families, but I'm going to leave the possibility there are, there may be one or two out there that parents don't inadvertently assign roles to kids. The roles of the smart one, the cute one, the troublemaker, the the loner. When I've had workshops and have people uh, list them, I've come up with a, maybe over a hundred names of that they've come up with of the kinds of roles that parents identify, and they don't. People don't realize it's the parents actually do the identifying. Oh, you're so cute, or oh, you look just like Uncle Joe, and Uncle Joe was the comedian in our family. So now that is the comment, the person who is. The is seen as the comic. In some ways, there's nothing wrong with roles. The only problem happens when the role gets crystallized. Then the role may not fit. And I love telling this story, although it's not very fun, but it's so dramatic that one man I saw was telling me about his sister, Caroline. He was telling me she started her own corporation and she's doing incredible things in this world. And I said, I don't understand. Every time you talk about her, you call her irresponsible Caroline. Why is that? And he said, well, I never thought about it, but that's just what we always called her. The parents had, apparently when she was little, she was irresponsible. When she was first grade, maybe, she was irresponsible. And the parents would always nag her for being so irresponsible. And then the kids just picked up calling her irresponsible. And here she is now in her 30s or 40s, whatever. And the family members, this young man, this man that I'm seeing, calls her irresponsible Caroline. But when I asked him about it, he says, well, I don't know. We just always do it. That's how the role got crystallized. It's true. A more obvious one is bossy. Someone has a, a bossy older sister or an older brother, and they always just see them as bossy, even while they are in adulthood, the older one is not bossing at all, but still the younger one is still saying, my sibling is bossy. So the roles get crystallized and if they don't fit, which over time, very often they don't fit, certainly by adulthood, many of these roles no longer fit, 
that then becomes a real problem. So this frozen images, crystallized roles, and the third one is unhealthy loyalty. And unhealthy loyalty is the most difficult one to see, and yet I see it the most often, which is really why it's so important. And part of the reason it's so difficult to see is because it rolls in the frozen images in the crystallized roles. Okay, so let me tell you, loyalty in a family is wonderful. Be loyal to your family's values and religious beliefs and social justice or whatever, how you see the world. The things that get passed down in families are, for those of us who study NASH, and hopefully most family therapists have studied NASH, loyalty is wonderful. Where the unhealthy loyalty comes in is when, as an adult, unconsciously, a person tries to honor the roles or the frozen images from childhood and how it may sabotage their adult functioning, either in relationships or at work or in friendships. So let me give you an example first. So let's say the uh, oldest is the smart one. And I'm going to use examples with two kids just because it's so much easier than trying to talk about families with, with multiple siblings. So to make the point, there's an older and a younger. The oldest one, let's say, is the smart one. And the sex makes no difference. There's nothing to do with sex. Okay, so the smart one is, the older one is the smart one. And the younger one is the cute. The cute one who has great personality and makes everyone very happy and cheery. In childhood. Okay, so here we are in adulthood. Move to adulthood. And the older one is having problems at work. Still doing well, but having problems. The younger one has a chance, for instance, to get a promotion, but the promotion would make the younger one in a higher position or higher income, higher status, and may feel uncomfortable. I'm not the smart one. He's the smart one. I need to hold myself back and may unconsciously sabotage, self-sabotage by doing poorly. I have lots of examples in my book about this. Or turning down a promotion for some flimsy excuse so that they can be loyal to the frozen images and the crystallized roles of their siblings. Regardless, older, younger, I use the example with the older, but it could be either way. It can also work that the older one knows that I am doing so much better than my younger one that I will hold myself back so that my younger one can be more successful than me. So it's an unhealthy loyalty to the frozen images and to the crystallized roles. And many times this works on an unconscious level. Oh, yes. Almost always. Do you find clients will accept when you connect the dots that way or they're so tied into those crystallized roles with that unhealthy loyalty, they have a hard time seeing it? It's amazing how often they say, huh? Oh, huh. And then we open up a discussion. Sometimes they may have a hard time at first, but very often it is, that makes sense. I might say, would you consider talking to your sibling to see whether this makes sense to your sibling? Let me move to the fourth ghost, if I may, to show you how these three tie into adulthood and what you're going to see in your office, what we all are seeing in our office, whether we know it or not. Not all the time, but enough of the time, perhaps. This fourth goes, I call the sibling transference. And this is definitely not Freud's transference for anyone listening. 
uh, as adults, we transfer the frozen images, the crystallized roles from childhood onto our adult loved ones, onto our adult work relationships, onto our friendships. The basis for sibling transference, I love this phrase. I got it from someone else. Did you marry your sibling? Which I think is cute. Because think about this. In childhood, in those early preschool to up to third grade, this really is a laboratory for all future love relationships. It's the first time when most people know, oh, you probably married your father, you married your mother. But those are cross hierarchies. We're family therapists. We know about Mnuchin's hierarchies. Siblings are on the same peer level, and it's the first time they are in the love relationship with peers. Siblings either learn or don't learn to start or resolve or avoid a fight. They either learn or don't learn to compete, save face, negotiate, or cooperate. They learn or don't learn to exert their power, or if they don't have power, when to withdraw. They learn or don't learn so many things, but another one is a power imbalance. The younger one or a one is smaller in some ways or less verbal. Using other skills, how to either learn or don't learn to use other skills when the power imbalance is off. And that might be for little children, it might be using humor, blackmail, manipulation. So what does all this have to do? That's what they did in childhood. But now as a sibling transference in adulthood, they're in a love or work relationship, let's say, and something triggers, something feels familiar. They're having a fight with a loved one. And it feels familiar. One of the ghosts from the frozen images or crystallized roles have popped up and been transferred to the loved person. And the way they will respond in this sibling transference very often are ways that they learned or didn't learn to respond way back when. So often with couples, when they're in the midst of a fight and I will say, does this feel familiar? What do you mean? Yeah, she's like this all the time. No, but back in your in childhood, does this the way you're feeling now in your fight with your wife, let's say, does this feel familiar at all to how it was when you were a child with your siblings? I previously will have found out that they have siblings. And so often, sometimes no, but probably more often than not, Eli, they say, oh, yeah, she's just like my sister. Every time my sister, and then they're off and running. It's interesting because many couples therapists and family therapists, I think they ask about our blueprints and relationships, that of our family of origin, and or perhaps in couples context, any previous romantic relationships. So it might ask about the parents, might ask about a previous significant others, but yes, the sibling, that primal relationship, I think it is what you're pointing out is a vast a place to get knowledge and insight and information that I think a lot of traditional MFTs overlook, especially when we're talking about a current romantic disagreement or entanglement. Exactly. And it is the childhood is the first time you are with a peer in a love relationship. When Sandra Watanabe, who's the one who used the phrase married your sibling, and she talked about that, it really got me thinking that it being childhood being a laboratory for all adult Relation, potential laboratory for all adult relationships, love relationships, and work. 
do I have time to tell you about how this applies at work? Yeah, in all p people's systemic domains, what happens at home, what happens at work, and understanding these four ghost impacts how the person interacts with all of their significant others, not just in romantic relationships. Go ahead, talk about work. If someone has a mean older brother and they're at work and their boss, they are feeling their boss is being really mean, unkind, mean, putting them down, demeaning, whatever the, the, they're feeling. They often will stay in that job and either feel bad or argue and doing things that they might have done in childhood with their sibling. Whereas somebody else who didn't have a sibling that at all or didn't have a mean sibling might not see the boss as being mean or demeaning or might say, boy, this boss is awful. I'm reporting the boss or I'm not working here. I'm leaving. I'm quitting and, and taking another job. I'm not going to work in a place that's so bad. The sibling transference goes where, whither thou goest. Your sibling transference goes with you <laughs> into friendships also. Any important relationship. That makes a lot of sense. So now after you've helped a client understand and categorize these ghosts the, that you've told us about, the frozen images, the crystallized roles, the unhealthy loyalty, and the sibling transference, talk to our listener about now how you help changing some of these patterns, both in their current relationships, but also with their sibling if they still have access to them. I want to tell you that Alice, Alice came to me. She was in her early 20s and she was bulimic. And so she was telling me during our first meeting how about what the bulimia is like. And I asked, when did it start? And she said, middle of her sophomore year in high school. And so I said, what probably all of us would say is what was happening then. What I learned back then, very often, teenagers, when the relationship breaks up, that the boy doesn't want to see them anymore, that often is a trigger for bulimia or for anorexia. So I asked her what happened that in the sophomore year, and there turned out she didn't have a boyfriend. And I said, what's happening that year? And she said, nothing. So when I hit a nothing, that's usually when I say, do you have siblings? It's such a great thing to say when you don't know what to say next. I said, she said she has one sibling. I said, tell me about her. She said, oh, we were very close. She's two years older than I. So I said, when you were real little in those preschool years, what were your roles? I always ask about roles. And she said, she was... She was the smart one. I was the cute, lively, and the very friendly one. And what? And I said, so what was going on for her during that time when you were in sophomore year? Thinking maybe there was a connection there. It could have been nothing. It often is nothing, but more often than not, there is something. When I said, what's going on for her? She said, oh, she was in her uh, senior year, and she's getting ready to go to college. I asked, how did you feel about that? And she said, Listen, I asked her, how did you feel about that? And she said, mom and dad were very depressed. Okay, so how did you feel? Oh, I was, she said very cheer, chipperly. I was okay because I knew I'd see her at Thanksgiving and she'd come home for Christmas. I asked her if she wanted to invite her sister to a session. And she said, why? I'd love to, but why would I do that? I said, maybe she has some ideas of how to help you with your bulimia. And, and then I added that sometimes... It's helpful to get input from someone who knows you well. She said, okay, I'd have to tell her I'm bulimic because she doesn't know. That led to her bringing the sister in, and the sister did not know that she was bulimic. Now, this is an example of unhealthy loyalty and that goes on to a sibling transference. 
Okay, so it's, it combines it all. When the sister came in, she was surprised to hear that Alice was bulimic. And the sister, whom I'll call Sue, the sister said, I regretted having set a bad example for you. She got really teary and she said something like, Alice was very beautiful. She had a beautiful figure. She was very popular. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. And while she described Alice, she then said, and I was in high school, I was short and fat and I had very few friends. Alice is very popular. And I was not. At that point, Sue turned to Alice and says, you are so pretty and your life looks so easy. But I was insecure all the time. Did you know that I used to eat? I used to sneak out at nighttime and eat and just stuff myself. Alice was shocked to hear that her sister had been jealous of her. I said, Alice, even though you thought you kept it a secret, could you have been trying to make sure you weren't so different from Sue at all? That you had her same problem, so you weren't so much better. You weren't so much prettier. You had a problem, even though you were so much prettier and uh, more social. And then I said something like, your bulimia started during your sophomore year in high school. It's almost as if you took Sue's binging problem and you went even further, so your problem was even worse than hers. The two of them were absolutely silent for a moment. And then Alice said, I guess I did. The binging felt like a way of holding on to you, Sue. It was proof that I wasn't so perfect, even though I may have looked that way on the outside. So Alice had been stuck in her crystallized role as the perfect girl. She and her frozen image of being the cheery, happy one used the bulimia as a way of equalizing, if you will, pulling herself down, which allowed her to be loyal to her sister and loving. I will let you shine more than I shine. That's the first part. A few years later, she is now in a love relationship with a woman, and she finds herself doing some of the very same things that she did with Sue in her love relationship. And when I asked her in terms of, of trying to make herself look less than her partner, when I asked her about that, because we had already, a couple of years before that, she came back to me years later, she said, oh, this is what I did with Sue. So she carried the unhealthy loyalty into her love relationship, transferred it onto a, through a sibling transference, and was recreating her relationship some of the time, not all the time, but some of the time with her new partner. That's how it gets all messy. So you had had insight with the two sisters years before of, of this powerful dynamic of these crystallized roles and unhealthy loyalties, but that didn't necessarily change the behavior. And she came back to you several years later in a similar spot in her romantic relationships. Our listeners, they like these concepts of the ghost. How do we get to move people from insight into action here? In our last 10 minutes or so, we can spend some time talking about you could use Alice and Sue is an example, or you can use a different example, but moving people past connecting the dots into actually then changing the behavior. There's several things I always ask in a session with uh, individuals or couples. Once the issue of siblings comes up, uh, what were your roles back then? What were your siblings' roles? And this is true whether they're two siblings or 10, as I have often have seen uh, large families also. Would your siblings say, the same thing about the roles. 
And then I'd say, who are your parents' favorites? And who would your siblings say the parents' favorites? So I always look for those two things right away. And then they go on to talking about whatever their issues are. And because they've been kind enough to listen to my questions, and now they get back to what they really want to argue about, how you did this or you did that or whatever. And I listened for the old ghosts. So that I will be saying something like, this sounds like what you were saying when you were talking about your younger sister, how she did this, that, or the other. This Does this sound similar to you about that? Sometimes they say yes. More often, yes. Sometimes they say no. If they don't say no, I let it go. If it says yes, we go back and we look at how is it back then? How is that related to what's actually happening now? Oh. She is doing blah, blah, and the love partner will say, because the love partner has siblings also, let's say, they have them look at how each of them have recreated the transference from a frozen image or crystallized role from their, one of their siblings. So once they begin to see it, they ignore me the first time. They say, yeah, fine. It comes up again in the next thing they're arguing about as they continue to argue. So each time it comes up in something that I'm hearing, the words always, I was saying before, you always put me down. Jane, does your brother always put you down? Does your partner always put you down? Or is this how you felt with your brother when he used to put you down? I am constantly coming in there with these four, what I'm calling ghosts. I don't necessarily use those terms with them. So that they can see over and over again. It doesn't happen one time, two times, three times. Each time I see something, I keep mentioning it. So that a spouse will say to partner, are you talking to me or are you talking to your brother? They begin to notice it. And then they say, okay, what do we do differently? Sometimes that involves bringing in the siblings and clearing up the issues with the siblings. And sometimes it can work with the couple just being able to remind themselves that how old are you feel? Another question I say in the midst of an argument, how old are you feeling right this moment? So often a couple in the midst of an argument is saying, either I feel like a 10-year-old, I feel like she's acting like a 10-year-old, which goes back to my asking about their siblings. So there are numbers of ways to, and in my book, these are just a few examples, and I have lots and lots of examples of, of how to pick up and talk about how to recognize the sibling transference, so you can break pattern and then deal with your partner on an adult level using different, and then you may have to teach skills of how to have good arguments and all that works fine once they are no longer fighting with a sibling, a younger sibling. Is there a postscript to the story of Alice and Sue, much like the family doctor model, many MFTs see clients at different stages or different transitions of their life. I know that those long-term cases that come back for different episodes of therapy are some of the most powerful for me as far as my alliance and tracking long-term change over time. What is the conclusion to Alice and Sue? Their relationship got much better and they were able to call each other when they felt like they one or the other was slipping back. So that was really good. And then for... Alice, in her relationship with her love partner, we were able to look at not only Alice's frozen images and crystallized roles, but also the partners. And as they were able to talk about, wait a minute, 
what's going on here. Asking them how old you're feeling at this moment is sometimes is, I mean, you can, you can use it in a variety of different times in arguments, but sometimes that is a way to get help them once they understand some of these early concepts. Help them say, oh, I'm beginning to feel young now, so let me take a break, get myself together, and come back and talk to you, and we'll have this argument differently when I come back in a few minutes. That's been really helpful. Before we wrap up, I know another thing you're passionate about, in, in addition to doing work with individual or sibling clients, is the notion of these adult sibling retreats, which is a unique contribution that you make. Tell us a little bit about the format of that and some of your best experiences leading these sibling retreats. Oh, Eli, you've touched us to a warm spot in my heart. (laughs) I have to say, I'm ADHD. I love intensity. If someone doesn't love intensity, don't listen because sibling retreats are high intensity. It's a full weekend. Could have two siblings. It could have 12 siblings. I think that's the most I've ever had. And it's very powerful. And I start with a geneogram so that they have a, a project to work on at the beginning that is neutral. And in the process of doing geneograms, they big piece of paper on the floor and they all get around and, and put everything, all the names and ages and on it. And, and they're trying to, they're working together in a very positive way, regardless how angry they are at each other. And then one of the things that I've contributed to the literature is color-coded geneograms which track behavioral patterns through the generations, which they get to do. Now, I have to say, I have even worked with siblings who have been, one has abused the other. These retreats are incredibly powerful, regardless what the issues are. There's no structure to them, but that's how I start. First, I start with, what do you hope to get out of this? And it's usually that my sister or brother will change some variation of that. But then when they start talking about what some of the problems are, I come up with either role plays or exercises or drawing exercises that are move it from verbal to nonverbal. So we move from one issue to another with the genogram there. So I can say, hey, wait a minute. Have you noticed that what you two are just fighting about, isn't that what your mother and her siblings used to fight about? And then one of them often, this is not uncommon, says, yeah, and grandma or grandpa and his siblings used to have the, the same cutoff or whatever. So it's a chance for them to see the multi-generational sibling issues, which amazes me that that actually is so often true. So we go through all the bad stuff, always looking at these four ghosts, how you got here, what role did your mom, your dad play in inadvertently? in setting you up for some of the conflicts back then that led to how you feel about each other now. By Sunday afternoon, it always ends with a lot of crying and laughing and note-taking of to remember all the feelings. And by Sunday afternoon, if not by Sunday morning, what do you need to do differently from now on? Having learned how all the problems started, what it's about, what each of you were feeling, learning empathy for each other, trying to get inside one of the exercises, many of them have to do with getting inside each other's shoes to see how it felt for the other person. And so it ends with something very positive of what do you want to do differently and how will you handle things when 
the problems arise again. It's been very powerful. I would describe a whole retreat, at, I think, in one of the last chapters. So anyone interested, I'd love for them to get the book, read about all these concepts, come talk, talk to me, email me if they have questions about how to get involved in doing some of this work. Yeah, you're reading my mind. It's been a great discussion. If people want to follow up after they listen to us, what is the best way to get a hold of you, Karen? My email is my initials and my name, which is dr for doctor, drkgl at drkarengaylewis. And because I'm 50, I've been practicing 50 years, that tells you that I spell Gail, G-A-I-L. Young people have all these fancy spellings. Or my webpage is drkarengaylewis.com. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast, where we seek to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Certainly, if you're interested in following up with Karen, again, drkarengaylewis.com. And on that website, not only will you see sibling therapy, the ghosts from childhood that haunt your client's love and work from Oxford Press, you also see on there a free download for actual siblings. The book is written for you, the therapist, but she has a free download. Are you a sibling? How childhood relationships affect your love and work is a free download that you can give to your clients. Interested in exploring more about how their historical sibling relationships impact their here and now, not just with their siblings, but also in other important relationships as we mentioned today. Uh, you can also find out about Karen's sibling retreats that she hosts. And uh, there's lots of information on the website about the retreats, her publications, how to get in contact with her. Again, KarenGaleLewis.com. Coming up from the AAMFT, we are so excited. The third annual Systemic Family Therapy Conference sponsored by the AMFT completely virtual, October 25th through 27th. So coming up shortly, and this is a conference, if you've never been a part of it before, it provides systemic thinkers with personal and professional development and cutting edge clinical skills and training. I have been fortunate enough to present the last couple of years. This year, I'm just going as a participant, but I'm looking forward uh, to choose from 70 plus sessions, networking with some old colleagues and some new colleagues that uh, I'm meeting virtual for the first time. And there's going to be 40 plus speakers there. The countdown is on now. You can go to networks at aamft.org slash conference. And we have some great news. If you are a student member, you can attend the three-day conference for free and if you're not a student member, but you're listening to this and you're part of an MFT program, maybe this is your first exposure to the podcast, you can become a member of AMFT by October 18th and receive all benefits of membership plus the discounted price for registration. If you're a student, it's free. If you're a professional member, it is $200, whereas non-member pricing is 250 so even if you're listening to this and you go to the website you check it out say hey, there's some workshops i would like to attend still 14.5 ceus three days 250 dollars if you're a non-member but membership has its benefits 
And remember, when you're a member of AMFT, you have access to both topical and geographic interest networks, as we profiled on the show in the past. The very valuable legal consultation service. You get a subscription to Family Therapy Magazine, our gold standard journal, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, and more. You get liability insurance discounts. Membership has its benefits. Again, please consider joining us virtually October 25th through 27th, the third annual Systemic Family Therapy Conference. We love hearing from you. I've been getting a lot of response lately to some of our shows. They help inform what we will produce as far as our content and the movers and the shakers in MFT who you would like to hear from. So can drop me a line, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. Love to hear from you. You can also check out my website, EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. There you will see all the things I'm interested in, including bringing common factors to life in couple and family therapy. It's my book we wrote with current AMFT president-elect, soon-to-be president in 2024, Adrian Blow. You can also see Marriage and Family Therapy National Exam, your study guide for success. It has been used as both a addendum to a standard marriage and family therapy text and everything you need to get ready for that licensure exam. If you ever wondered what it would be like to consult or study with me, you can also see on-demand training opportunities on our website. Again, thank you for making this show everything that it is. And until next time, my friend, stay safe, stay systemic.